A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On today's New Statesman podcast... We talk about exam results in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And you ask us, why do you think Priti Patel's a good political operator anyway? So exam results are out after a fashion in Wales, Northern Ireland and England using a version of the moderation process similar but different to the one used in Scotland last week, causing a great deal of pressure in particular on Gavin Williamson, the Secretary of State for Education in England. Yeah, Al, do you think there's any possibility that he will be able to avoid ending up in a similar position policy-wise to the Scottish Government? I'm not sure. I mean, definitely it's what they are trying to avoid with this triple lock, as it's been called. So the way students can either take these results that in many cases, in like 40% of cases, have been downgraded today, they can either take these results or submit their results from their mocks to be considered, or they can retake the exams in the autumn and can take the, I think, well, there's a bit of confusion as to whether you will definitely be able to take the better mock results if it was better, because I think there are questions over the exact circumstances of, of the mocks and which mock results would be valid and which wouldn't be but yeah in in general I think the way these caveats have been brought in at the last minute giving people different routes of appeal and different ways of changing their results I think probably means that we won't get into a situation where pupils will just be able to keep the the results that teachers predicted for them It is a huge mess. I think that your point, because you've been writing a lot about this in recent days, I think that your point is the best one I've seen on this, that ultimately like it's it's asking an exam system and schools to to correct a problem that they didn't cause. Like ultimately, like no exams happened this year. So kind of whatever result comes out of this will be a massive fudge and hugely frustrating and disappointing to people because, you know, without proper exams, there can't really be proper results. Anything else that kind of obscures that fact probably isn't isn't an adequate response to this problem. Yeah, as you say, I've been writing a lot about this, and it was one of those things where, well, I was I was trying to do because I've well, I've been very late doing my um July because it's now in the middle of August. My sort of July kind of like here's what I think I've got wrong. Here's where, I, but I was kind of thinking like, well, okay, so in March when I read off Quell's press release and its blog. And both they and Qualifications Wales have actually, I think, been like the model of how a quango should behave transparently in this, right? This is the weird thing, right? They have actually both like, they've performed very well in terms of the absurd task set to them. But the problem is, is, is that like, there are no exams. 
it's I think it's a great example of, of two like things that big organizations often get wrong. One, the central problem is actually so ridiculous that people don't say it out loud because they feel silly. But the second you go like, why are these exam results unfair? Well, because there are no exams to have results on. You suddenly go, like, oh, yeah, wait a second. This is a stupid exercise, isn't it? Like, we are like, we, we, we're literally doing something insane. You know, like, for, for example, well, actually, you know, I was about to compare it to the Premier League, which is a, in many ways, right, Wales is more like the Premier League, right? In that when the Premier League stopped, they'd played like 32 games. It was, you know, very apparent that Liverpool were going to win the league. Really, the, the only difference, which would obviously been very close to my heart, would have been that Arsenal would have finished above Spurs on a points per game calculation if, if it had stopped at the restart. They would still have got European football one way or the other because we won the FA Cup and they obviously, well, they also won their cup final 2-1. But what what the exam board being asked to do in England, Scotland and Northern Ireland is basically go, the Olympics haven't happened. Just look at like how the countries did in um, Beijing, London and Rio and just, just kind of assign some medals. like like on, And you can do that in any number of ways you want. You might learn something about the quality of the, the body that you've, you've asked to perform this silly task. But in the end, right, if you're an employer or you're Nike, you're not going to be like, ah, oh, yes, time to give a sponsorship deal to that gold medal athlete. If you're a university, you're still being given a bunch of pupils who do not have qualifications in a meaningful sense. Many of whom, like, the weird thing is, I think we kind of keep talking about, like, yeah, people keep, like, inventing these, like, desirable case studies or writing about these actual case studies, right? But, like, so let's take, say, someone who's, like, parents are both doctors or both teachers or, like, someone who we would expect to, like, do very well both in their exams and in this system because they probably have been ranked one or two by their own teachers. So, well, bluntly, I think if both your parents are doctors during a novel pandemic, you probably aren't as university ready as your older sister was mm. two years ago. That probably is going to be a harder job of work for your higher education institution to integrate you into study. If you are someone, you know, with a family of five in a small flat, ranked top in your class, similarly, you're getting your three A's. But again, you're probably not as uni ready as you would have been two years ago, unsurprisingly. And this is basically just like what happens if you say to someone, and this is, yeah, I think does happen in cabinet government all the time, where you kind of go like, here's a labour market problem. Please solve it using secondary schools or please solve it using the DCMS. And inevitably, like any solution you have is bad. You can be less, significantly less bad if you are, have the more modular modes of assessment. I mean, I saw on BBC News earlier some Welsh people actually thanking Kirsty Williams, the uh, Liberal Democrat Education Minister in the Lib Lab coalition mm. there, for how they've approached this. Now, that is partly because she's been in post a long time. She benefits from uh, both policies she's introduced and policies uh, introduced by, was it One Wales in 2013? Or were they alone? I, I forget the time. I But, but basically introduced by, by the previous Labour government in, in Wales as well, which allow you to be more fair because you can have the Premier League option. But broadly, this is an insane thing to do and it's going to annoy people however you do it. It's just you can do it slightly better if you are Wales rather than the other three countries of the United Kingdom. Yeah, so um, I'm going to be exposing my ignorance here slightly and should have checked this before we started talking about it, but I'm sure other people listening will be unclear about this. So the triple lock that Gavin Williamson has introduced, is that only available in England or does it also cover Northern Irish and Welsh results? It's only available in England. And then in Wales, Kirsty Williams has guaranteed that if students get results that are worse than their AS results, 
they will get the the better results or like it, they won't be it won't be possible to be downgraded from their AS results I've been looking for what guarantees are being given to students in Northern Ireland and I'm not actually seeing any yet unless Northern Ireland is allowing appeals I think but they're the triple lock doesn't seem to apply. Yeah, so this is this is only an England an England only so- mm. solution. The Welsh government is basically going well. There's a backstop of your A levels, and for GCSE, most people will still have done coursework, right? So there's a backstop of sort of people's actual assessments, which I do think is I do think this is, this continues to be a really interesting example of how people do not experience fairness in the mm. aggregate, right? Now, obviously, it is deeply unfair. To have your results partly guaranteed by your AS levels if you did not know that they were set in stone. Now I think that it's actually better we we, yeah, we should have kept AS levels in England but but banned resets but you know that's a debate for an entirely different time. But it's slightly unfair but you've at least had an opportunity to t- to shape your own destiny. Coursework yeah has a, a number of potential inbuilt unfairnesses but you've been given an opportunity to shape your own destiny. So that just feels more fair. What I think is interesting about the lack of kind of the seeming lack of outcry uh, in Northern Ireland thus far is to litigate another education point. Right. This is what the 11 plus does anyway. Right. Like there, there will be less outrageous drops due to moderation because the gradient among schools. Right. Is already so stark. And I just think it it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how it plays out. You know, broadly, it seems to me. I find it so hard to get my head around the fact that grammar schools are still accepted across the whole uh, country. But this is just what the 11 plus does in a kind of, but with an algorithm doing it rather than with like the remorseless logic of separating kids at 11 doing its usual thing. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's actually interesting that it is actually very difficult to talk about A-level results without coming around to a conversation about grammar schools and about 11 plus as well as about I suppose the differences between not only grammars and secondary schools but between private schools and state schools yeah I think it's it's an interesting one and having obviously grown up in Northern Ireland and gone through the Northern Irish grammar school system I'm sure I have the biases of someone who has who has benefited from it personally but my dad was a teacher in in Northern Irish secondary school and has a, a very different perspective on it um, but just I know I know lots of people listening in England don't have much of a sense of how the school system works in Northern Ireland. But as you say, it's a grammar school system, really, rather than a private school system. Like there are a handful of private schools in Northern Ireland, but they're they're really like on the fringes of the education system. They don't they aren't necessarily considered the best schools in Northern Ireland. The best schools tend to be grammar schools. And as you say, until about a decade ago the 11 plus was compulsory here and then when it wasn't I mean it's been a sort of political football the 11 plus for for a very long time here but it was scrapped by Sinn Féin about a decade ago and in its place is is basically a worse 11 plus system where all of the grammar schools in Northern Ireland still get students to sit an 11 plus but it is privately run you have to sign up and pay for it. You sit it in an exam centre. So rather than everyone sitting that exam in their state school and being prepared for it by their teachers to to an extent, I mean, it, that clearly varies across schools and some richer students benefit from a lot of tutoring for it. But it, it's gone from a system where at least everyone sat it in reasonably fair conditions to 
only the people who opt in and pay for it can can even sit the exam in the first place. So it's it's a sort of even there's even more of a gulf between grammar education and secondary education here. So as you say, there will be a huge difference in the results coming out of grammar schools and secondary schools. I mean, actually, a lot of a lot of secondary schools don't go up to A level here, so it would be mostly grammar schools getting these results anyway. But yeah, basically the the difference in attainment is so baked into the system that it's completely normalized. You know, people make a case in favor of grammar schools here as sort of distinct from, from the English one. People make a case for it, especially when everyone sat, sat it um, by arguing that grammar schools have like can leverage huge amounts of, of social mobility for children from deprived backgrounds if they pass the 11 plus and do well so you know last week we were talking about John Hume on the podcast and Claire Hannah actually mentioned how he would have been a number of like Catholic school boys who benefited from the 11 plus and and going to a grammar school sort of and how that actually had loads of political consequences for Northern Irish politics that suddenly there was an educated Catholic middle class prepared to engage in politics and make a very nuanced progressive nationalist case for sort of the first time yeah it is just interesting that that like as you say that maybe will just mean that there isn't the same outcry here because I think people accept that there is a huge difference in attainment between secondary and grammar schools and it's it's perceived to be more fair because it was based on attainment age 11 but also people people here would tell you I never heard the end of this when, when I was at school. People here talk about how the difference in attainment between the most privileged and the least privileged in Northern Ireland is much smaller than it is in England. The gulf is, is much, much wider in England where you have like incredibly high standards of education in some of the, the most expensive private schools. Like the education that you get at Eton is amazing compared to some of the like most struggling deprived schools. Like that gulf is, is absolutely enormous. And it means that on average, Northern Irish school pupils do perform better and that's used to kind of justify this system. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. now it's time for a section we like to call you ask us right so this is a question i'm being held to account this week <laughs> so fairly recently Stephen described i love getting to describe myself in the third person pretty patel in fairly glowing terms i can't remember the exact phrase he used but something about how smart a political operator she she is 
As someone boldly on the left, a consumer of the estates, I have to find Stephen's assessment of Patel confusing. I expect I'm not alone in this. She seems to lurch from gaff to gaff, to crisis of her own making, to crisis of her own making. I don't find her personally impressed and I don't like her politics. Does my bias and distaste for her politics mean I'm missing what, what she is good at and what she is, uses she to the government? Why do you think she is a good political operator? And so one of the reasons why I thought this would be an interesting sort of question is, actually, I mean, guess, Alva, you, you, you were, it wasn't just and I wanted to, you know, talk about myself in the third person. Mm. Do you want to talk about why you wanted to, why you thought this was an interesting question? Yeah, so I thought this was a, a very good observation from that listener. I think that, this, that you were maybe talking about Priti Patel in, in a week that I was on holiday. But yeah, this is definitely one of your opinions on Priti Patel, that she understands a particular strain of thinking in the Conservative Party and in the Conservative base and caters to it better than almost any other conservative politician and I now completely agree with that so I think that it's hard for me to remember what I thought before you said it but I I, I think that yeah this is this is really one worth talking about because as as is alluded to it in the question a lot of people on the left really strongly dislike Priti Patel for like quite obvious reasons like as you say like lots of people hate her politics and what she represents and then also find you know for example the the reason that she was fired from the cabinet last time around and other perceived gaffes find that to just be evidence of a wider incompetence but I think that it's very helpful to think about the role that she plays for the conservative base that the conservatives messaging their wider political direction I, I suppose like this is a good question to to be thinking about this week because we've been seeing a lot of very sad coverage of of refugees slash migrants making like very treacherous journeys across the the channel in tiny dinghies and there's been a lot of debate about how that coverage is being conducted and then about how Priti Patel and the Labour Party have have been responding, and and it's another example of of her very much appealing to that kind of mindset of a sort of a hang him and lash him authoritarian closed borders mentality in it describing that in, in crude in crude terms. But I mean, I was saying to to our producer Nick before we started recording, I find this one very difficult because you know there's that relatively recent analysis of the way political divides work these days that the main divide is between open and closed so so roughly sort of cross-border metropolitan open borders international cooperation pro-immigration position that would be I suppose broadly represented by the remain position in the UK plus closed so people maybe not from bigger cities who um, in maybe more precarious work situations who feel like there is no no basically no room for immigration from an economic perspective but also who dislike the the big cultural changes that high levels of, of immigration are, are bringing in with that kind of analysis of the of the starkest divide in politics I think it means that like people who have an, an open mentality don't understand why anyone would like Priti Patel but like the case for her being a very good politician and 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 arguably a very successful one, is that she understands the closed mentality better than maybe anyone else. Is that fair, Stephen? Is that why you think that she's a good politician? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, I think that, yeah, in some ways, I know this is a deeply nomic and obnoxious answer, but like, 
The reason why I think Priti Patel is a good political operator is precisely the same reason why. And actually, you know, I know lots of our listeners got in touch to you know explain why they both agreed and shared my horror at the the possibility that Priti Patel may one day become our prime minister. But the reason why she is good at politics is precisely that level of um, visceral horror and repellence that makes it hard for people to accept the idea that she is. Now, it's obviously, her operational competence is demonstrated by the fact, and or, or lack thereof, is demonstrated by the fact that she you know, had to resign for essentially, you know, freelancing her own foreign policy. And then they have found it necessary to kind of give her this protective ring of quite competent ministers of state in order to sort of make that department run semi-functionally. But her political talent is, despite all of those those very real operational problems, the reason why she's been protected and is so essential to this government is she is a symbol to a large chunk of their voter base that this gov- is a government for them. You know, she crucially is obviously like a person from somewhere. Yeah, like she has a clear, you know, a clear accent. She clearly embodies the values of a, a part of that coalition. But also in terms of, like, the, the key to the Conservatives staying in office with a decent-sized majority is their ability, and indeed one of the key ways that Leave was able to win, is through maintaining the kind of chunk of the, and I, I think Open Be Closed is, is, yeah, it's one of those phrases I personally don't like, but I think it's a very useful schema. But through essentially, through maintaining the support of Open Leave voters and Open Conservatives, right, and I think I've said this about, yeah, about one of the reasons why I thought UKIP should have gone for Stephen Wolfe, right? There's a a chunk of the country that really wants to be told by an ethnic minority politician that it's okay for them to not want immigrants to come here, including actually a non-trivial chunk of ethnic minority British voters. And she just speaks and articulates that stuff incredibly well. Now, obviously, she's helped by, yeah, to use an example this week, like, I mean, I think there were lots of things about how this coverage of these I mean, one, the coverage of these comparatively small movements of people, yeah, and deciding that the way to, to try and do that was, yeah, like, why, why, don't we, why don't we see if we might end up watching some people drown live on air, which I just think wildly overstates the extent of the, like, ultimately, right, the UK, United Kingdom and France both have obligations under international law to provide sanctuary for refugees. And there is an argument between the United Kingdom and France who are two, you know, perfectly stable countries who are both perfectly capable of rehousing these infinitesimally small number of people without any sort of difficulty. And the fact that our media immediately ends up in such a hysterical place on it, I think is deeply troubling considering that it feels likely, to put it mildly, that by the 2030s we will be seeing much larger movements of people because of the climate crisis. And indeed, we may before that be seeing much larger groups of people because of, you know, the ongoing disasters in, in, in Libya and Syria. And, and I don't think from, from how we've reacted to this, and this is obviously something I've been writing for a long time, but the way that we our politics reacts to these very small movements of people doesn't give me a great deal of faith that we won't end up in a very nasty place when we're having to deal with much larger movements of people. She's very good at embodying that, but she's also very good at the internal party combat stuff, right? Doing a sort of perfectly pitched, oh, here's a speech where I'm, you know, I'm not being disloyal, but maybe I could be your leader when Theresa May was in some difficulties, which A, future-proofed her when she was sacked, B, having the sense to 
to realise that you know to you know to to get you know to get behind Boris Johnson early. She didn't mount her own operation. She didn't you know she didn't you know do anything that kind of sort of blotted her copybook. And I think if you compare, say, so actually let's compare her to Andrea Leadsom, right? Andrea Leadsom, right, is someone who actually does have a, a record of having successfully implemented things, surprised a lot of people with how well she handled being leader of the House, built alliances on bullying, was basically sacked after two minutes at the Department of, of, of Business. She never really was given a chance at a, a major department. She was micromanaged by the chiefs under Theresa May when she was at DEFRA, wasn't really allowed to, to, to do very much. Then she was sacked under, under Biz. Well, what's the difference between her political position and Priti Patel's? None at all, except Andrea Leadsom briefly ran for the Conservative leadership against Boris Johnson, didn't sort of cash her chips in early and hasn't done a very good job of like basically saying to a large chunk of the Conservative grassroots as well, I'm your guy. Mm. And, and Priti Patel has done all of that masterfully to the point where instead of it being a like, hmm, what do we do? Yeah, yeah the, the very fact that we have a situation where someone who holds a major office of state has serious question marks about their operational competence. And we all know that the government's response to that is not only not going to be to put her somewhere less difficult, but could not be because she embodies their political project. You know, I mean, I, I actually did. I did actually the other day have a nightmare in which like, I was in the ITV studio <laughs> as I was in 2019, but in 2024. And the exit poll came up and it was just like her head, <laughs> Keir Starmer's head, <laughs> Layla Moran's head. And the conservative majority has gone up by 40. And like a bunch of people were like, I don't understand how this could have happened. And I was just like, sitting there just like, I, I understand how it could have happened, guys. I understand how it could have happened. And then I started to sink through the floor and it became, you know, more like a regular dream. But, uh, and that, that to me is like the, you know, in terms of like the point I often like to make, and this is like, this is not just a problem that the British left has. I think in the same ways that like, Netanyahu, as well as embodying like the closed half of the divide, but he also does lots of kind of small things. And if you don't follow it closely, you kind of don't appreciate, but where he kind of like is very good at basically being like, hey, do you know whose values I don't have? Tel Aviv's. She's just very good at that kind of like, hey, do you know whose values I don't have? Sometimes because the difficulty setting is turned down all the way to casual, as it was with the BBC's ridiculous coverage of, of her being sassy to Ben and Jerry's on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but also, yeah, because she just does, does have a brilliant and acute political sense. Mm. She, she does embody the forces that have, and the forces in the coalition that have put the left on its back, not just here, but across large chunks of the democratic world. Yeah, and that to me is the thing that I think people are missing if they don't see that she's an effective operator. Gosh, people are going to be really reading into that dream, Stephen. What it reveals about all of your unconscious assumptions about where our politics is heading. (laughs) Not least Leila Moran, who'll be really pleased that your unconscious endorses her for leader on some level. I mean, I feel like my unconsciousness is probably doing the reverse of endorsing her for leader. In many ways, my unconscious is running interference for Ed Davey. But um, (laughs) yeah, I do also think she's just the most fascinating politician of our times because Mm. it speaks to so many trends, right? The fact that we... Literally, this whole conversation we've acknowledged, well, yeah, of course she's not competent. Yeah, like we've acknowledged that there are there are those serious question marks about that. And and many of the things that people used to sort of see as paramount in politics, you know, valence, so 
doting on competence, not sort of these cultural pushes. Economic interest, this is obviously someone who, you know, very much her politics are not this kind of like, you know, she didn't come into politics to level up. Yeah, the kind of dominance of cultural fissures over uh, economic ones. Right? Mm. She embodies all of those in so many ways, while also being the most authentic child of Thatcher in lots of ways, left in the cabinet, possibly actually now. I mean, I can feel, yeah, Liz, Liz Truss, if she listens to this podcast, sharpening her axe when I say that. But, mm-hmm. but you know, she's, she's I, I just think in terms of the state, not only of British conservatism, but that kind of arc of successful politics on the right in the democratic world from from Netanyahu to the BJP to law and justice in Poland I just think she more than any other politician in the United Kingdom embodies understands and really represents that and I do think you know maybe it won't be next time but I do think that my my nightmare of you know an exit poll showing Pretty Patel becoming Prime Minister, unless some way on the left can be found to turn those forces flank. I just do feel that that dream will come true. I think the way you talk about her embodying a particular set of, of values and positions is is the right one, because I think a lot about, about the way that politics is primarily emotional, and as well as people thinking about the exact message that a politician is making on at, at the point that they watch them or, or read about them. I think that there's the there's the broader thing about how that politician makes you feel. And even thinking of the difference between her and someone like Andrea Leadsom, I think the difference is just that Pretty Patel has a much stronger brand. I like like you say, it's the reason why she provokes a visceral dislike in people who don't like her politics. Everyone knows exactly what her politics are. And it's, it's a kind of fundamental, like Pretty Patel is an embodiment of, of a kind of tough person with a kind of, I feel like, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to describe her in any way that, that would then have me accused of being sexist, even though I think that there probably is a big gender dimension to the way her image works, a little bit similar to Thatcher. But I think, yeah, the way she sort of is, a, is an embodiment of, of the strict figure telling people what to do representing a tough line on on a certain number of issues I think yeah is is very very compelling and again I think that the appeal of Thatcher I, I've have you seen the, the BBC documentary about Thatcher Stephen yeah I was watching that recently and the thing that struck me maybe more than anything was the way basically it was only men but all of the men who had worked closely with her talked about her in such an, a, an emotional and fawning way it was as though again this this sounds kind of gross and sexist but like they kind of enjoyed being bossed around by her but also kind of loved the the more human side and I think that the the, like the complicated emotional relationship that people develop with strong political leaders is something that I think Priti Patel has the potential to have with an electorate Unlike a lot of politicians who just don't don't you know don't inspire emotions like that in the same way. Yeah, and I think your your point about the Thatcher comparison is really well made for a number of reasons, which is one of the things that yeah I've been thinking about a lot yeah for a long time, but since the twenty nineteen election in for a variety of reasons, partly because of what happened to Joe Swinson and partly because of the the kind of three year monstering of Diane Abbott, particularly when she became Shadow Home Secretary, is that. The fascinating thing about both about that documentary and about kind of like when you talk to sort of the people behind sort of the sort of reimagining of Margaret Thatcher's image is is Margaret Thatcher. If you look at pictures of her as education secretary 
and you then look at pictures of Barbara Castle, right? They she they consciously looked at why Barbara Castle, who was then the most popular female politician in the country, they looked at what she did and they kind of emulated that from the right. There isn't at present in the United Kingdom an example of a female or ethnic minority politician on the left who has successfully presented a model of national leadership that the ethnic majority and men and indeed women in the case of women leaders are willing to vote for right now you could say that's partly because they haven't consciously looked at say you know helen clark they haven't looked at other successful women leaders and gone okay well what's the like thing you do yeah because obviously i don't think it was the only problem joe swinton had but i think some of her problems were about misogyny and in an odd way thatcher's incredible success at presenting a model of female leadership that male voters and indeed voters of all kinds were so willing to vote for. I think a slightly, it's, well, both it's created space for, for other women to come after her, obviously Theresa May, but it's not just, I think, about who gets the top position. It's how many potential contenders who have a sort of plausible chance of, of it. But she's also, through embodying and dominating that image, I think she's made it much harder for a female politician on the British left to emerge because, like, they can't consciously emulate this thing that the country believes is successful women leadership in terms of its tone and style, because then there are left-wing politicians channeling Margaret Thatcher and their own party would find that very difficult. But so they're then having to kind of write their own sort of way of doing that, that often, as I think we saw with Joe Swinson, and I do think would have been a challenge for either Becky Long-Bailey or Lisa Nandy, and I think did feed into some of the way they were covered yeah i mean obviously on trans issues the fact that like their position on those pledges was considered inherently more newsworthy than the male candidate is a good example of that i just think then yeah then the that is the other thing that she's very successful at is she's she's doing she is modeling ways of like taking that thatcher template of how you a woman gets men to vote for her and she's she's banking those those lessons, which which Thatcher modelled from Barbara Castle. And she's taking and modelling a kind of like, because in some ways she's she's doing a sort of right-wing nativist version of the like, Obama, I forgive you. You're a great country. We can all come together. But she's doing it for the closed rather than for the open. She's the most interesting politician in British politics. And I hope that I will not have a peg to do a long read about why, because it will mean that my nightmare has not come true. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Alva Ray. It's produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons and is still Devil by the Devil. If you've enjoyed the New Statesman podcast, please do tell a friend. Today's New Statesman podcast, we talk about exam results in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And you ask us, why do you think Priti Patel's a good political operator anyway?
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.